Well, good morning, church. As we get ready to go into our text today, I think the obvious question to begin with is, so what do you think about angels and demons? Daniel chapter 10, right? What do you think about angels and demons? I mean, I mean, are they nothing more than the stuff of fairy tales and, and rank mysticism? Are they the spiritual source of every single evil in the world that we see? Or are they something in between? Even more importantly, is there any possibility that demons can do anything to separate God's people from his love, protection, and care? I'm asking this for two reasons, at least to begin with is because as we look at our culture today and we look at the media, whether it be movies or what's written, it seems that our culture loves to depict angels and demons and God and Satan as equal opposite forces, right? There's forces of light and there's forces of dark and they're of equal power. And often, our culture tends to depict the forces of evil as stronger. That's what our culture does. So that's the first reason that we want to press into this question. The second reason we want to press into it is the honest truth. This is a lot of Christians really don't know what they're supposed to do with angels and demons. We've just we've we've heard lots of stuff, we got lots of questions. Something sounds confusing. So we're not always sure what to do with it either. So why all this talk of angels and demons? Because it's in our text. And in our text today, we get like the tiniest peek. The tiniest peek into an unseen battle that's raging behind the trouble and conflicts and persecution that we often see in what we call the real world. There's, There's real things that are happening. And this is this this tiny peek into what's going on, and it does not give us all the answers we desire. So as we come to this text this morning, we do come with a conviction that angels are real, demons are real, Satan is real. But as we unpack this text, we are going to discover this glorious truth, and it's this. That God's people are forever secure. Because our spiritual foes are no match for our infinitely powerful and ever faithful God. God's people are forever secure. But to see this clearly, we're going to have to answer at least three questions. I know there's more, but at least three that come out of this text. Why is Daniel fasting? Who is this messenger? And what does he reveal to Daniel? Three questions we're going to work on today. First of all, being why is Daniel fasting? And, and I have to admit that when you're reading later on in the text, you've already forgotten that Daniel's fasting, right? I mean, my gosh, there's angels and demons and they're fighting and they're doing stuff. Talk to me about that. But let's ask the, this, this first question. We need to engage these first verses because while it doesn't seem important on the surface, the significance of Daniel's fasting becomes more important as we grasp the nature of his vision. So if we turn to verse 1, what does Daniel tell us? He receives, there's this word from God, and it's true, and it's of great conflict. But what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, is, is Daniel contemplating the visions of chapter 8 and 9? 
Is he looking back at visions or is he looking forward at the visions that's going to be talked about more in chapters 9 and 10 or chapters 11 through 12? Well, given the fact that Daniel understood the word, he tells us, it appears that this conflict in verse 1 is related to the content of this vision going forward. And this becomes even more clear when we recognize that the original Hebrew word behind conflict here in our English Bibles is a word that refers to armies, warfare, and it was used to denote hard service. Ways that this word is used. Therefore, Daniel seems to be saying, I received a word from God, and this word from God revealed a period of great hardship and war and suffering for the Jewish people who returned to Jerusalem. And guess what? That's exactly what we see when we go to the next chapters. And Daniel responds to this vision and this revelation by fasting and praying for his people. But there's even more to see in these opening verses. When we grasp what's going on in the historical context at this moment. In verse four, we're told that this messenger arrives on the 24th of Nisan, and that's not a car. It's calendar date on the Jewish calendar, the 24th of Nisan, and it's, it's, we're talking about April 23rd, 536 BC, third year of Cyrus's reign. And this is important because it means that the events that are recorded here in the final chapters of Daniel are occurring just weeks before the people back in Jerusalem start work on the foundation of the temple. We, we see that in Ezra chapter 3 verse 8. When we read Ezra and Daniel here together, we can see that Daniel's fasting is occurring weeks before they actually finally get to start building the temple. But even more, if we look at this date, we realize that Daniel's fasting is occurring during the Passover festival, which happens on the 14th, 15th of Nisan. Celebration of the exodus from Egypt. So, so, so Daniel's fasting at one of the highest periods of the Jewish calendar. Instead of participating in the feast, celebrating God's deliverance, he's mourning. He's mourning because there's been a new exodus. Not from Egypt, but from Babylon. There's been a new exodus. And he's been hearing reports things aren't going well back home. If you've read the book of Ezra, you know, you know that instead of quickly resettling and rebuilding and getting everything going, that the efforts of the people going back to Jerusalem were quickly blunted by local opposition. They're low on supplies. They're still subject to foreign rule and the temple is still in ruins. All of this stuff going on in the early chapters, Daniel's, Daniel's hearing about it and he's grieved. What, what happened to this glorious prophecy from Jeremiah? This exodus doesn't look very glorious. So in light of this, we're able to see that Daniel isn't just mourning over his vision of great hardship for his people that's coming up. He appears to be mourning over the present hardship and suffering of his people as well. What's going on right now? They're suffering in hardship right now. So let's just, let's just stop here 
and apply this for a little bit. At this point in time, Daniel is in his 80s. He's living a life of relative luxury as a lifelong, high-level official in both the Babylonian and Persian empires, right? Daniel's paid his dues. He's done his time. And by this time in his life, he's over 80. Doesn't he deserve a day off? I mean, I've done my thing for the church, right? I've done my thing for Israel. No, <laughs> that's not, not how Daniel looks at it. No, he's deeply committed, we see, to at least two things here, just in the opening verses. He's deeply committed to God's glory and to God's people's highest good. He's committed to these things. And what kind of reports has he received from Jews who've been in Jerusalem the past two years? The sad news. It's a mess. Things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. He hears God's people are barely holding on because of those meager provisions and all this oppositions. And how does he respond? He's, he, he doesn't go rush into King, King Cyrus and plead with him. At least in the text, we're not told that he does that. He doesn't, he doesn't lash out at Israel's oppressors and he also doesn't shrug it off. Not my problem, I'm not there. No, it grieves him to the core and he set aside a dedicated period of fasting and prayer to plead with God. I mean, just think about it. How, how do you and I respond to the plights of fellow Christians around the world? How, do, do, do the reports of persecution and murder in countries like India, Myanmar, Sudan, and Pakistan drive you to anything more than a momentary sensation of discomfort and sadness? Well, that's a bummer. I'm asking this because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I, have more in common with Indian, Kachin, Sudanese, and Pakistani Christians than we do with our unsaved neighbors and friends here in America. We actually have more in common with those people than our unsaved friends here in America. And and that's because we've all been forever united to Jesus Christ, all Christians, through all time, all tongues and tribes, through the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. We're united in him. Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 18, for though we for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's our relationship to all these other Christians. We have more in common with them than our neighbors that don't know Jesus. And just we just need to think and ask the question once in a while, like what would it look like if, if, if God's people, if God's church was as concerned for his glory and the good of his people around the world as we were about the good of our immediate family, the good of our close circle of friends, and, and honestly the good of our nation. Like we want good for those things. Those aren't bad things to wish good for. I 
I was thinking about this week, and I was thinking, like, like looking at the immediate context of our passage, it might look like God wrought relief and progress in the face of opposition when we understand that within weeks of Daniel's prayer and fasting, temple work begins when we read the book of Ezra. I think that helps encourage us to think that like, like our prayer has more impact than we think. And if we miss this, we miss Daniel's heart and we miss the broader purpose of this messenger who we pick up in verse five. Let's look at this description of this messenger here. We get verse five. I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men with me were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell on them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw the great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiance, a radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sound, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep, deep sleep with my face to the ground. So who's this messenger? Typically, there's, there's, there's three answers to this. And we could kind of quickly skip over it, but let's, let's just take a little time to look at this. One, 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 of the, one of the significant answers that's often presented in here is, is this messenger here we're seeing is, is, a, is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's called a theophany. Much like Joshua, after the death of Moses, when, when he sees the commander of the Lord's army in, in, in Joshua chapter five. And those that would see Jesus here would give us, would give us three, three key reasons. Number one, when we look at his description that I just read, and if we had time this morning to read Ezekiel chapter one and Revelation chapter one, descriptions of God himself and Jesus Christ in Revelation, we look at these and they overlap. Like, the, like, like these are the same descriptions used of God himself and Jesus Christ. Second reason is that Daniel's companions in this episode respond much like Paul's companions on the road to Damascus. They can't see anything and they're afraid. Very, very similar response. We, we get to the third thing. Daniel's physical response as we see that, that keeps getting brought up. Like, like the, he has to keep getting revived to just listen. That encounter looks much like the encounter that Ezekiel and John experience in their encounters. In Ezekiel chapter one, Ezekiel says, when I saw him, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. He saw this vision and he just falls on his face. He's done. Revelation 1, 17, when I saw him, this was of Jesus Christ specifically, I fell at his feet though dead after seeing Jesus in his risen glory. See, what I want you to see is there's a lot of good reasons to believe that this final messenger in this book is the pre-incarnate Christ. That is until we run into the obvious problem. 
How does Jesus get delayed by the prince of Persia in verses 12 through 13? It's a good question. If we were in a Bible study and we had a bunch of time, we'd probably spend a good 30 minutes right here. But we don't have the time to explore it, but I would just say is for those who advocate a a vision of Jesus here, uh, they're not undermining Jesus' deity. They would say that what we likely see here is, is God's sovereign providence at work in what's going on, not some sort of deficiency in Jesus' omnipotence. So there's some good cases that are made and there's good answers about this delay that have nothing to do with depreciating Jesus. So Jesus is one. Then we have the other answer is it really comes down to some angels. One is, is maybe it's Gabriel who we saw in chapters eight and nine. He's just not given a name again. We've already seen Gabriel. The other one, which I think most scholars today tend towards, is this is just an anonymous angel. We don't know who he is. We're not given a name. And, and they, they, they go there because, again, the delay with the prince of Persia for them is too much to get over for Jesus, even though this description and everything seems to fit him so much, seems to be something they can't, a barrier they can't get over. So to the question, who is this angel? It's important for us to wrestle with the question, but at the end of the day, we're not totally clear. We're not totally clear who this messenger is. Good scholars wrestle it. These are the answers that they come up with. But I don't, I don't think we have to, in this text, have that perfectly answered. Because the message is really the core. What does he say? Starting verse 12. And he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first days that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the later days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So, so on one hand, what does the messenger want Daniel to know? He wants, if we, go, we look at verse 14, he wants Daniel to understand that this vision, everything that he's seen, is about the future. It's about the future. But as we read the text, he doesn't address the future stuff until chapters 11 and 12. And if we keep pressing into the text, I think we can identify at least two other things that he wants Daniel to know. Because a lot of people ask, why do we have all this, this, this entire slowdown of the episode and all this conversation with the angel to get you know, a whole chapter before we get to the explanation? It seems to me that there's two things that he wants Daniel to know before we get to the vision. Number one, God hears and answers the prayer of his people. And the second thing that we see in this is that God's people are part of a much greater battle. Two things that he wants Daniel to know. 
So let's, let's look at this first one. God hears and answers the prayers of his people. He wants Daniel to know that the God heard his prayer and answered his prayer the moment he made it. Wouldn't that be nice to know? Of all the prayers that we pray and we wonder, is God hearing? Did he listen? God heard it the moment you spoke it. It just took three weeks to get the answer. Right? And, 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 and I know that like, this is easy for us as modern day Christians to read past quickly. Because we're so used to praying and not, not, not seeing things quickly, instantly happen. But if we've read the book of Daniel closely, what happens every time Daniel prays? Does he have to wait a long time to get answers? He gets answers that night. He gets answers in the minute. He gets, in the moment, he gets answers to his prayers. See, every time he's asked for wisdom and understanding, God has answered his prayer almost instantaneously in this book. So the delay in this book of Daniel is is unexpected. Yet in this delay, what do we not see? What do we not see? We don't see any indication that the messenger's delay was a result of Daniel's deficiency. There wasn't a problem with Daniel that made the delay happen. The second thing, we don't see any indication that the messenger required Daniel's continued prayers as as a source of power. For anybody who's ever played Mario on their Nintendo system, little guy has to run around, he starts out really small, then he gets the mushrooms and he gets really big and powerful, right? Right? Like, 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 the angel doesn't need power-ups through his prayer so he's strong enough to address the, the prince of Persia. That's not the case. And we don't see any indication that the prince of Persia or any other demon had an ability to hinder Daniel's prayer. None of those things are hindrances. This is important for us to see because I think many Christians, for, for, for many reasons, because popular Christian literature sometimes is popular but it's not very anchored in the Bible, they live under the false pretense that, that demons can hinder our prayers. Now, can our prayers ever be hindered? Let's change the question. Is it possible for your prayers to be hindered? I'm not asking in connection to demons. Is it possible for them to be hindered? And the Bible's answer is yes. At least, at least six circumstances in which our prayers can be hindered. I'm going to move through these kind of quickly in bullet point fashion. But if we think about hindrances, we need to qualify what demons can't do, but also what can happen when it comes to our prayers. Your prayers and my prayers can be hindered for selfish motives. James chapter 4, verse 3. 
you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Why was the prayer hindered? Selfish motives. Another, 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 another one from James. Why are our prayers hindered? This one we got to qualify a little bit. It could, we don't have as much time to talk about today, but doubt. Doubt hinders prayer. James 1, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let, let him ask in faith with, not, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I would just state along with this passage in James, it's not saying that you need to somehow muster up a mountain of faith for God to respond. That's not what it's saying. We come in our prayers with the weakest, most humble and fragile faith all the time. But it's faith. That's why Jesus talks about faith the size of a mustard seed. He's not saying you require a lot. But he's saying come and believe. Third thing that can hinder our prayers. Unforgiving hearts. Mark 11 verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Unforgiveness hinders our prayers. It's not demons. Family discord hinders our prayers. First Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your prayers might not be hindered. Husbands, your prayers could be hindered because of your relationship with your wife. Final two. Prayers can be hindered for rebellion against God's revealed word. To know what God's word says, to say, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. Proverbs 28, verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If you want to live in rebellion and then try to be asking God for stuff, we're told that doesn't work that way. Finally, unconfessed sin. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And I kept that one for last because it helps us understand that how do we find the solution to these hindrances? It's through confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because the fact is, every single one of us have had periods where we have been unbelieving. We've had periods where we've walked in rebellion. Periods where we've been unforgiving. Like we've, we've, we've had those things. They're real. They're part of our Christian life as sinners who've been saved by grace. 
those are things we need to remember about hindrances. Prayers can be hindered. But we're never told they're hindered by demons. And we should know from Luke 18 that even praying with a completely clear conscience and right before God with no sin doesn't mean we get instant answers because Jesus' parable of the persistent widow says there's many times in the sovereignty of God that he calls us to pray and pray and not lose heart. Just some important things to bring in because we can get so focused on the demon aspect of what's going on here that we can kind kind of assume some things are happening that aren't happening. But there's some truths about prayer that we need to recognize. So as we turn back to our text, when we move to the second thing that we see in here, what does this angel want Daniel to know? He wants him to know that God's people are part of a greater battle. Yes, God answers prayers. Second thing is God's people are part of a greater battle. Let's read the text again just to keep it in front of us starting in verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not Daniel for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I came and I've come because of your words. God answers prayer. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, now whether you realize it or not, these few short verses are one of the clearest portrayals of spiritual warfare in the entire Bible. A messenger sent to Daniel. The very moment he prayed, but, he, but, he's, but, he's, but he's delayed by the prince of Persia for 21 days. That sounds kind of significant. And, and, and while I know, I know that the title when we read here, we read Prince of Persia, it might bring joyful memories of video games past for some of you. This prince of Persia is a fallen angel. He's a demon who's trying to wield the kingdom of Persia as a weapon against God's people and against God's salvific purposes. That's his goal. That's what he's doing. And at this point, it's good for us to clarify a few things about demons. It's important to recognize and make it very clear Satan and his demons did not exist before creation. There was not not some sort of world in which God and demons were present. No, in fact, at the very beginning of creation, Satan and his demons were not evil. They were holy angels who were created to serve God. God's servants. What happened? All we know is that sometime before Genesis chapter 3, Satan fell to selfish pride and he drew a host of angels to himself in rebellion against God. That's what we know. Prophets talk about that fall in some symbolic language. 
But ever since, ever since that day, ever since that day, Satan and his fallen angels do everything in their power to thwart God's purposes and to harm God's people. That's what what their purpose is. And, And from this passage, it appears that one of the ways the demons carry out their guerrilla warfare against God is by influencing the decisions of nations and their leaders. It's one of the ways. Yet while Satan and his demons are incredibly powerful, there's something that they're not. In fact, let me highlight three things that they're not because I think that we struggle sometimes to to give Satan and his demons more power than they actually have. So three things they are not. Omnipotent. Are Satan and his demons powerful? Yes, they are not omnipotent. Any power they've received is from God. They are also not omniscient. They do not know all things. And most importantly, they are not omnipresent. God is. They're not. Many people will talk as if Satan is everywhere all at once. He's not. His servants are not. They can be in one place at one time. Yes, they are spiritual foes, but they are not everywhere all the time. No, they're finite created beings who are wholly bound by God's unlimited sovereignty. They're finite. They're created. They're under God's sovereign power. Why? How do we see this? We see it in the book of Job when Satan goes to talk to God about Job. Satan can't move a millimeter further than God allows him to. Everything bound by God's sovereign control. Even more, as we come to this topic, this side of the cross, it's even better news. Because Jesus has defeated sin, death, and Satan on the cross. Colossians tells him to put them to open shame. All the powers, all the rulers, all the authorities to open shame on the cross. Are they still here? Yes, but their doom is certain. And their eternity is in the lake of fire. We need to be clear when we think about the demonic realm that we do not grant it power in our minds that it does not have. So in the context of Daniel and his prayer, what are we supposed to make of this spiritual warfare? Well, I believe believe God wants Daniel to recognize that all of the hardship and oppression and persecution that he's witnessed in the world over his 80 years. It's, it's not merely a matter of sinful men. And I say, make, get that clear. It's not merely a matter of sinful men. On one hand, it certainly is a matter of sinful men. Right? right. Sinful men stormed Jerusalem. They razed it to the ground. They murdered countless people. Right? But what he wants Daniel to see is that on another level, Daniel's learning 
that there's these unseen powers that carry out their anti-God campaign in two primary ways. They seek to influence and control the kingdoms and governments of this world. They seek to influence. What's their goal? To, To inflict harm and havoc on the people of God. And when it's not merely about the people of God, they just hate people anyway. Anything that brings terror and pain makes them happy. Same thing, second thing they want to do is to bind any way they can unbelieving sinners to their sin and rebellion against God. To bind them there. And it doesn't always look the same way. Sometimes it's binding people in the most deepest sin and, 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 and all sorts of, of dependencies. But for other people, it's actually in a life of leisure and ease. Money is easy. Life is easy. I don't really need a God in my life happen both ways see there's what we can see in this physical world but then there's this whole unseen arena that Daniel in this passage opens up for us and I don't think that most Christians are always thinking about it this way on the one hand we we don't have any trouble believing We don't have any trouble believing that our political officials are incompetent bureaucrats. I don't think we have a problem thinking that. I don't think we have a problem thinking that these political officials are more interested in lining their pockets than leading for the good of our nation. But what we don't think about is the fact that there's these sinister spirits that are lurking in the halls of our own Congress and helping shape the policies of our republic. That's the kind of thing that we're seeing in Daniel. Helps us see that there's more going on than just flesh and blood. Yet in this revelation, you know what I found most interesting as I worked on this passage this week? Daniel's messenger doesn't give Daniel a spiritual warfare battle plan. He doesn't give him a spiritual warfare battle plan. He doesn't give him a means of discerning territorial powers or demonic activity in the Persian court. He doesn't give them those things. He merely tells him that he's going to be heading back into the fight. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says... I was there and responsible for helping Derry, or Cyrus come to power. Like, I've played a role. I'm playing a role. And, and I take this to mean the fact that this isn't given, that Daniel isn't supposed to obsess over the spiritual war. Aware of it, yes. Obsess over it, No. And that he's supposed to continue doing the things that he's already been doing, which is praying on the behalf of his people. He's been praying. 
So how should we respond to this? I mean, I mean, we have to have a proper understanding of the devil's power if we're going to stand firm against the devil's schemes, right? We need to. Yet, yet the devil seems to have two basic strategies of operation when it comes to this world and how we think about it. On the one hand, he would actually have us make too much of the spiritual war, and on the other hand, he would, he would have us ignore this topic of spiritual warfare and angels and demons altogether. Now notice they're, they're ends of the spectrum. They're not balanced, they're ends. On the one hand, we need to be aware that we, we, we don't make too much of this topic of spiritual warfare. Too much of it. Not saying that we ignore it. See, when we make too much of this, this topic of spiritual warfare, we quickly fall into the demon behind every bush syndrome. Right? Demons going on everywhere. And we can see this in certain branches of Christianity that explain every negative event in the world in a person's life as the work of demons. Someone's an alcoholic, it's because they're possessed by the spirit of alcoholism. If they're bitter, it's the spirit of bitterness. If they're seriously sick, they're under some kind of spiritual attack. Everything, everything, everything is demons. But even closer to the interest of Daniel chapter 10, there, there can be an overemphasis on territorial spirits when we think about presenting the gospel. Trying to identify and pray against and, 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 and that becomes the central focus. Maybe a bit more than actually the work of presenting the gospel. I'm not saying that there's not balance in here. I'm saying we can go to such an extreme Everything is about demons. But then also we can fall to the other side. Actually, before we get there, we, we, we need to, I, I want to point out something that we see in the text. It is, is that the messenger doesn't tell Daniel to pray against the prince of Persia. He actually doesn't, doesn't call him to be actively fighting that. As we look at the text, he actually encourages Daniel with the truth that God has heard his prayers and God is in charge of the spiritual battle. So, that's what we see in this text. So let's, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. If one end is to see too much and to make too much of demons and their power, the other is to ignore it altogether. And that's, 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 that's wrong as well. I mean, Satan's happy to have us ignore the whole issue of spiritual influence and make everything just about people. He's happy for it to be there. I mean, on the one hand, if we, if, when we see demons in everything, it's like he, it magnifies and multiplies his work to such an extreme, we can be afraid and worried about everything going on. But on the other hand, he kind of shrinks out of sight altogether when we're told he actually has a negative role he's playing in the world and so do his cohorts. And I'd say that this is often his dominant strategy in Western culture. See, it's all too easy for Satan to work when people don't believe he exists. And in those contexts, he often walks around as the angel of light, not as the roaring lion. So too much or too little. 
is how we can respond to this. We need to find balance. We need to be in balance on this. So the question is, is, as we close, how are we supposed to engage in this war? If it's real, if it's truly this serious, I mean, if, if Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which in most likely context there is the evil one. Not just deliver us from evil things that might happen in our life, but deliver us from the evil one. How does a Christian live? Well, I think we just need to go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're not going to unpack the whole passage. I want to highlight a couple key things that we see in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. What is the purpose? So that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Verse 12, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He makes a big deal about this. He says there's something important going on. Conclusion. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. But the question that we run into is what in the world is this armor? Well, if we look at the verse, verses 14 through 18, what we see is that it's really a description of faithful Christian living. It's of mature Christianity and of an individual who has their identity anchored in Jesus Christ. It's not a mystical thing. Listen to, the, listen to how it describes the character and maturity of a Christian whose identity is anchored in Christ. How do we stand? Having fastened the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes, your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Isn't that interesting faith? Trusting in God to do what God does. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Where do we find any offense in this armor? It's in one thing and it's in God's word. But then notice where he goes in verse 18 and how much this aligns with where Daniel has been. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What was Daniel doing for three weeks? Making supplication for the saints. This is how we respond. Not with extravagance, not with worry, not with fear, but by standing firm as Christians in our identity in Christ 
anchored in the truths of his word, and pursuing God in persistent prayer. Because we can know, we can know for a fact that as Christians that God's people are forever secure because our spiritual foes are no match for our infinitely powerful and ever faithful God. Let's close in a word of prayer.